0: This is Central Texas Living with Ann Harder.
1: Hi everybody. One of America's foremost authorities on religious freedom is Judge Ken Starr. He's written a new book, Religious Liberty in Crisis, and it is a joy and honor for me to welcome you here to the podcast today.
0: Thank you, Ann. It's so good to be with you.
1: Well, first I want to start by saying thank to you, thank you you and Alice for for choosing Central Texas to uh to live. I mean, you could, you could have chosen anywhere to, uh, to live. And we're just so honored that you're here in central Texas. Well,
0: you're kind to say that we love Waco. We love central Texas. It was a joy to move back to my native Texas, uh, 10 years ago when Baylor invited me to come on board and, uh, Alice took to it like a duck to water. She really fell madly in love with Waco as well as, uh, Baylor and the beautiful life there on campus. So we view it as a blessing to be here. So thank you for saying that.
1: Well, it is a joy again to get to talk to you. Um, The cause of religious freedom is not um, a new one for you. I mean, this is something religious liberties really around the world is something you've been concerned about, right?
0: For virtually my entire professional life, I've been engaged as a lawyer. I saw cases as a judge and since moving into higher education and then even after leaving higher education, I've been very deeply involved and frankly, increasingly concerned about the state of religious liberty in America. But thank you for saying around the world, I serve on a nonprofit group that uh, worries about and tries to engage in promoting the idea of human freedom and human dignity around the world. Uh, And I hate to say it, but it's getting worse. Uh, things we should be making progress, uh, we're not around the world. And there are lots of tensions here at home, as we've seen in recent uh, years. And again, I think we're now, I don't think this is an exaggeration. Religious freedom is now in crisis.
1: And that's what you focus on in your book. And it's it's a very readable book. I mean, you you do talk a lot about case law and things that have happened, uh, cases that have gone before the Supreme Court that have been uh, crucial to ensuring our right to worship as we wish.
0: We should give thanks for the first 16 words in the First Amendment, our first freedom, Yeah, right? Before you get to freedom of speech and freedom of the press and the peaceably assemble and petitioning the government to redress grievances, and do we have a number of those? A lot of people do have grievances. Before you get to those, you have those 16 words. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Very few people should be worried, I don't think anyone should be, about a state or a community, quote, establishing a religion. We're now the, whatever, the Church of Texas. Nobody's going to suggest that. It's so removed from our culture and our constitutional uh, traditions. But I think we do need to increasingly worry about the free exercise of religion in light of, and I'll just be blunt, the growth of an aggressive secularist worldview Have your own worldview, it's a free country. Think whatever you think, and almost act without hurting someone else, uh, however you want to act. But please don't interfere with the free exercise of religion which includes freedom of conscience, and that's what we're seeing. Attacks on people of conscience, on issues that are very difficult, very sensitive. People get really riled up about it. We've even seen confirmation hearings of late, Uh, raising some of these very sensitive issues. But here's the very good news in my book. The Supreme Court of the United States, not by five to four margins, by overwhelming margins and frequently unanimous, opts for religious liberty. And as well they should because they're not elected. They are our oracles to read the Constitution. And in reading the Constitution, Almost always the Supreme Court of the United States, including now, r- rules on the side of religious liberty, of religious institutions and religious individuals.
1: Well, you know, it, you talk about in your book something that's very concerning to me, and that is this cancel culture. I mean, that's a term I'd never even heard about until right. not too many months ago, honestly. But, man, are we seeing it happen and and it's and it's frightening it it's not enough just you know, I've got my opinion, you have your opinion, you need to be destroyed. <laughs> you don't even well, get to live i mean it's 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 scary, you know you don't get it, to have a job it's it's that kind of i i don't know radical thought that's that's frightening
0: we should be uh deeply concerned, and I don't mind using hyperbole to say that uh, the cancel culture is a clear and present danger to America's culture of freedom. Uh, and so much of the culture is going along with cancel culture. Uh, and I don't need to start enumerating, but I describe in the book a couple of uh, incidents that everybody can look back on and say, really? Uh, no, ch- let's ch-
1: talk about it. I mean, okay. we've got the time because, because it's, it's horrifying, uh, but go ahead and let's talk about some of the, the ones that you cite.
0: In, well, one which is just st- still startling to me is that one of the nicest people in the world named Charles Murray, Ph.D. Harvard, serious sociologist, but he has controversial views, is not just shouted down at Middlebury College, a liberal arts college, but he's physically assaulted physically assaulted by students who didn't want to hear what he had to say. And he said if the police hadn't intervened, he said he would have gotten uh, hurt. So I use that just as an illustration. People can have other illustrations that come to mind. And this is so inimical to the ideals of our constitutional order. It was Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. who talked about the marketplace of ideas. And it was Justice Brennan, who was a liberal icon on the Warren court, spoke so eloquently about the willingness in the United States to have what he called robust, open-ended, uninhibited debate. And he went on to say, and it frequently makes us uncomfortable. The fact that it makes you uncomfortable doesn't mean you get to cancel or to say I need a safe space and so forth. And I think that the current assaults on religious freedom and freedom of conscience are part of that broader mosaic, that broader cultural movement away from freedom and in turn uh, a sense of if I think that what you have to say in any way is inconsistent with my vision of human dignity and the good society, I get to cancel you out. No, you don't, but it's happening, and that's, I think, a great uh, misfortune. But here's the good news. Uh, The Supreme Court, again, tends to favor freedom of speech and freedom of press. And so aren't we thankful, we should be, that you might disagree with this decision and that decision? Of course, we're all going to have our disagreements with the Supreme Court. But overwhelmingly, the Supreme Court in these areas of freedom of speech, freedom of press, and... My immediate concern of freedom of faith, exercising of faith, comes down on the side of freedom.
1: What are some of the assaults you're seeing on the free exercise of faith, though?
0: Uh, Church closings. Let's take church closings. During the the pandemic, I think that's the most recent example. Uh, And several cases went up to the Supreme Court when governors of some states, uh, especially California and New York, just said, Boom, you're closed. Uh, and, and uh, or very severe restrictions, uh, the kinds of restrictions, and let me make the point through a Nevada case. A Nevada case, the governor of Nevada entered this order so that essentially, I'll just cite Caesar's Palace, but the casinos could operate at 50% capacity. But churches couldn't. They had a a numerical limit of 50. So think of a mega church and a large sanctuary or auditorium that can hold perhaps 2,000 or more people. 50 can come in. And, and the Supreme Court, to my sorrow, allowed this to go forward for a few months, but then changed radically in the early fall and said, that's it. You can no longer have these discriminatory rules. And that's one of the great messages of religious freedom that I talk about and in the book. Thou shall not discriminate against religious voices. If you say to a church, oh, no, you can't use the school facilities on the after school on the same terms that the Rotary Club does or the, 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 the Garden Club does, guess what? You have committed a constitutional violation. And I hope that this book will help take the scales <laughs> Off the eyes of so many people who have this view, which was never in our Constitution, oh, separation of church and state means you can't, you can't meet here, or we can somehow treat you differently because you're a, you're a church and we need to have a 10-foot constitutional pole. Now, we've got to be careful and make sure that we're protecting the conscience of all persons and not having the state move, in the, the, the government, move in the direction of establishing a church of showing favoritism. you know, In, in this community, we're all, fill in the blank, we're all Catholic or Jewish or, or Muslim, so we're going to play favorites here. One of the messages of the First Amendment as interpreted by the Supreme Court is, no, everyone gets treated equally. Don't single someone out for favorable treatment, Oh, Episcopalians, we like you. You enjoy a glass of wine. Now, you, you people over here, you Baptists, you, you see what I'm saying? <laughs> right. Treat everybody the same. It's really a golden rule of constitutional law.
1: Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned what comes to my mind is uh, the young lady. I think her name was Megan that wanted to have a little club after school hours. Though, use one of the rooms, I guess, in the school, and it was like, no way, you can't do that. And she was inviting all faiths to come for this Bible study, I presume.
0: And that was one of my formative experiences because her name was Bridget Murgan's. Oh, is it Bridget? Yeah, Yeah, I knew there was Uh, an M. But Megan is yeah. Okay, that's where it is. (laughs) uh, Bridget was a public high school student. She goes to this public high school as a sophomore. It's very large mega school. And she says, oh, I want to start a Bible study club open to everyone that people said you can't do that. She said, but excuse me, you have 30 some odd extracurricular groups. You've got the French club and the chess club and you've got the Dungeons and Dragons club or Dragons and Dungeons. Uh, And the school said, oh no, separation of church and state. Totally wrong. So I ended up arguing that case in the Supreme Court, which ruled eight to one in favor of Bridget. And the one justice who didn't uh, on the equality principle, said, you know, when Congress stepped in to pass this thing called the Equal Access Act that's so intrusive into the federalism values of local control of schools, it was not a very, I thought, well-reasoned opinion. But here's the point, eight to one. So the most liberal or progressive members of the courts said, come on school, equal protection. And Congress had spoken to this almost unanimously, and said, school districts, and by the way, it came out of Lubbock. The Lubbock ACLU tried to keep one of these clubs out of Lubbock high school. Yeah. And the Supreme Court didn't take the case for whatever reason. And Congress stepped in and said, and I'm talking about Congress. I'm not talking about the Republicans. I'm talking about the Congress of the United States, almost unanimously passed the Equal Access Act, that if a school district, they all do, Receive federal funds. Guess what? You can't discriminate against Bible clubs.
1: Excellent. <laughs> well, and that's pretty good. simple. <laughs> yeah, and it's it, you know f- for those of us you know who who um, like logic and you know and justice, it seems it seems only fair and right. Um, yeah, what I loved also in your book at toward the end, really, you cite a number of of local faith heroes of mine who've been a part of this in fact this podcast like Susan Peters uh who yes. who uh and her important fight against human trafficking and Jimmy and Janet Dorrell, mm-hmm. Jimmy's been on this but, with Mission Wake the good work of Chip and Joanna you know and this kind of work needs to continue what they're doing you know without you know hindrance by the government
0: exactly and i call that chapter uh, an american grace and that wasn't from amazing grace it was drawn from a book by one of the leading sociologists in the United States, a Harvard professor, Robert Putnam, uh, and he co-authored it with a professor from Notre Dame. And he titled the book American Grace, and he shows through social science that churches in particular, but religious institutions help ennoble people and they help, society flourish? So you start thinking, oh yeah, Methodist Hospital, didn't I? (laughs) Or Baptist Hospital. Mm -hmm. Uh, Isn't there a Methodist children's home here? (laughs) Yes, there is. And so the question that he addresses is, are we better as an American people, a more loving and caring community by virtue of churches and people, religious folk, carrying out their vision of what the life of faith means <clears throat> in the scripture in the new testament faith without works is dead and that's what you see in a, a, a jimmy dorrell and and the other wonderful ministries of the churches here in this community each having some role to play making our community a better place and that happens all over across america and all over the world if the churches people of faith are allowed to carry out their ministry and that's a big if.
1: Yes, because there are forces that want to shut down the church, that want to um, shut up you know people of faith and and keep them out of the public arena. In fact, I'm, I don't know if you, are you familiar with the it's a satirical website called Babylon B. No, and anyway, no. they, they, it's just, it's all satire. It's pretty funny, yeah. but uh, the headline was American Christian bummed that following Christ may soon actually cost him something <laughs> with, with the quote, I wish Jesus yeah. would have warned us about yeah. this in the Bible. <laughs> so have we kind of grown complacent? And, and in fact, the church may come under true assault.
0: Right. It may, uh, but our constitution protects us as long as we have. Uh, honest and honorable judges, whoever appointed them, who are faithful and true to the Constitution. But just think, are we better as a society by virtue of Martin Luther King Jr.'s leadership of the Civil Rights Movement? Are we as a world better by virtue of having Mother Teresa as an icon? Oh, the abolitionist movement. Who was dominating the abolition? Oh, they were all preachers, pastors, ministers of the gospel. And Nelson Mandela, look at what he says when he emerges from that horrible prison experience and he sees what's unfolding and he talks about the missionaries. He's not known as a paragon of faith, a Christian icon, but Nelson Mandela saying so much good, the most good that has been done in my country, been done as a result of the missionaries. And I would say go to some of these countries and you'll see that's really true. Social science supports that. An article in the American Political Science Association, peer-reviewed, said that societies that allow missionaries in go up in terms of income, health, and education. Guess what missionaries do? Albert Schweitzer gives up his philosophy role and, and his leading musician status in Europe, the world's living expert on Johann Sebastian Bach and a renowned organist himself, he feels as a Christian he's called to go to medical school and become a medical missionary to Africa. Mm. It wasn't just, oh, I believe in humanity and human dignity. It was I've got to go serve.
1: Serve, yes.
0: I've got to go serve. Now, obviously, someone can have a secular viewpoint and have that, but come on, look at who is out there hustling and making the world a little bit better. It's it, it's it's Jimmy and Janet Durrell, right? It's Martin Luther King Jr. It's Mother Teresa. Uh, it's Susan Peters mm-hmm. and laying so forth. down their lives, really. So, to help. yeah, you can say I disagree with their faith vision. How can they believe all this? Fine, that's your view. Welcome to a free country. Please allow them to act. Don't try to ro- oppress them. Don't try to repress their voice. Allow freedom to flourish.
1: Well, do you think there there could be though a move to start? I don't know. Uh, Removing tax statuses, you know, those kind of things. Sure. That can, be, can It's going be harmful. Do you think so?
0: Oh, yeah. I think uh, the move to remove tax exemptions, unless, so fill in the blank of your yeah. favorite social policy, right? Uh, and I don't even want to imagine what those might be. But uh, yes, indeed, I see that coming uh, soon because tax exemption for churches and, and, and ministries and so forth is really part of the equality principle, right? That, well, the museum is tax-exempt, right? So is this, this uh, park, which has, that's tax-exempt. What about churches and so forth? So just treat everybody alike, it's the equality principle, which is one of, what I call in the book, and one of the great principles. There are six great principles that every American will agree to, every American of goodwill, will agree to and said, yeah, I learned that in kindergarten. <laughs> well, but here's the application of that large and important principle in the context of religious freedom.
1: One of the other cases you talk about that I thought was, was interesting had to do with a monument, I think, to World War I. Yes. Uh, lives lost. And it was in the shape of a large cross. Yes. Let's talk about that.
0: Yes. In Bladensburg, Maryland, which is essentially a suburb of Washington, D.C., uh, in the wake of World War I, uh, the good people of Bladensburg, uh, so uh, a century ago plus, said, we need to remember, they were the young men, the young men who perished, in that war, and so the community got together, and at by that stage, our culture had evolved, and developed to the point that military graves, instead of just having a stone uh, tomb, uh, had religious symbols. That had not been traditional in, in cemeteries, and in military cemeteries, and so it started in Europe, and then you know, spread across the Atlantic that we have crosses, Jewish stars, the stars of David, and so forth. And so a large Latin cross was developed. And there were some uh, points of difficulty in raising funds and so forth, but the point is, by the 1920s, this very large monument was up, very visible, you can't miss it, at a traffic circle, what is now a traffic circle. And as the decades went by, then finally in the 21st century, The American Humanist Association files a lawsuit saying the cross has got to go. And it goes uh, to the uh, Court of Appeals, uh, and the the federal district court said, no, no, this is a part of history and tradition. And the Fourth Circuit in Richmond, the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals said, yeah, you got to do something, including one of the judges says you may have to just cut the arms off the cross. So it becomes sort of like a Washington obelisk. It goes to the Supreme Court of the United States, and guess what? Seven to two, seven to two. So Justices uh, Breyer and Kagan uh, join the majority in saying, no, our history and tradition vindicates that. And so one of the points of the book is, in fact, it's an early chapter, history and tradition gives us a way of interpreting the Constitution and it's not just in the religion clause areas. It's in so many areas that our history and our tradition, and traditions get to be respected. And that's one of the great principles. Our history serves us well.
1: Well, we're seeing, though, just an acceleration of monuments being torn down. What, what are your thoughts there?
0: Well, I prefer the monuments not be torn down. Uh, but <laughs> I kind of <I>, gathered that. <laughs> but uh, uh, but uh, they if, if they're torn down... <laughs> Uh, I I would just say I don't approve of acts of vandalism. I would prefer a democratic process where we say, do we want to honor these people from the past in light of the values for which they stood and Mm -hmm. fought Confederate generals uh, and and so forth? Uh, But my view is we look at the past, we recognize the faults and the failures, some of which were profound, but we also don't say, you know, we're just going to cancel these individuals. So the University of Virginia, we're going to just ignore the fact that Mr. Jefferson, who owned slaves, founded this university. So it's no longer Mr. Jefferson's university or Washington DC now needs to be renamed, right? So, and, and obviously the vast majority of the American people will not countenance turning our backs on, recognizing their faults and profound failures for supporting a culture, an economic system of slavery, and say, we're just going to cancel out General Washington.
1: Well, those discussions are happening at Baylor University with Judge Baylor. Yeah, Statue. And, I th- and I think I <laughs> so- don't want to
0: comment having, having <laughs> served at Baylor, but I'll just say this. Uh, I honored uh, the legacy of Judge Baylor and the other uh, founders. By the way, one of the founders was from Brown University in Rhode Island. Uh, So one of the three Baptist pastors who was so instrumental in the founding of Baylor uh, was definitely abolitionist, anti-slavery, and so forth. So we look back in sorrow that there was such a horrible practice uh, as slavery. At the same time, we recognize General Washington, you did a lot for this country. In fact, you were the critical founding father. Uh, and so, to Judge Baylor. Uh, we can condemn, and rightly so, morally, the fact that he would have engaged in the uh, practice of slavery, but we can still honor the fact that uh, he wanted Uh, education, and here was one of the things on the other side of the ledger. Uh, Baylor University was co-educational from day one. And that was an age when women didn't go to colleges even in New England, right, progressive New England. No, and women didn't have the right to vote. So some of those Baptist pastors were really friends of freedom, and they should be honored.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, Oklahoma Senator James Lankford spoke to uh, some fellow conservatives about the erosion of religious liberty. Recently I saw a speech, and he said, in the words of James Madison, your religious opinions are a property of particular value. Your faith is your property, not the government's property. He says it's, it's like your car, your house, your Browning 12-gauge. It's your property. The problem <laughs> is not everybody believes that.
0: Yeah. So I think we need a restoration of these first principles on which we all should be able to agree. Let's learn to live with our deep differences and respect those differences, but not try to cancel out voices, but also recognize American grace. So much good has come from the religious community, the faith community. So let's let's say, yeah, we want more Mount Sinai's (laughs) <laughs> we, we want more Methodist hospitals in Houston and Baptist hospitals in, 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 in I to say in Baylor, in, uh, in, uh, in Waco, in Central Texas. And the, so much good is done uh, by these institutions. So let's celebrate that and certainly protect the freedom to establish these institutions.
1: Well said. Well, I like to end these visits with a questionnaire. It's similar to the one the late great James Lipton used on Inside the Actor's Studio. If <laughs> that rings a bell with you, and the first is, "What's your favorite word?"
0: Oh my word! <laughs> <laughs> uh, my favorite word is encouragement.
1: All right, your least favorite word?
0: I guess to be very original, uh, discouragement. I just hatred. Yeah. And similar words, vitriol. I versus thou. You know, I I don't like the idea of exclusion and and indignity. I'm I'm going beyond. In- You've got a lot of that. <laughs> Inhumanity, right? Treat people with humanity. Yeah, right?
1: absolutely, absolutely. What turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally?
0: Well, I will, I will say that I try to be a, a faithful uh, student uh, of the Bible, and uh, I am an incurable Bible reader, and, and then those who have reflected so magnificently uh, on Scripture, including I've really gotten long since into C.S. Lewis, uh, including his stories— uh, but uh, in more recent years, uh, G.K. Chesterton, some of these characters who are just, they were such geniuses walking uh, uh, the earth. And they too were, as C.S. As Lewis uh, famously said, that uh, atheism has been with us forever and will be with us uh, forever. So the, the world divides into uh, these communities of faith or, or lack of faith. But uh, I so enjoy the heroes of the faith. But my favorite, I'll just come back to encouragement, my favorite character in the New Testament, or certainly one of the minor characters, is Barnabas, son of encouragement. Uh, and it's one of the things I've always encouraged uh, faculty and uh, seniors and juniors, and encourage those who are coming along uh, uh, behind. And there's so many statements about uh, that Plato even said, treat people with kindness because they're fighting a great battle. Everyone I didn't do justice to Plato, but it's an ancient thought that still resonates, perhaps even more so than 20 years ago.
1: Yeah, absolutely. What sound do you love the most?
0: Oh, I'd say now the sound of my grandchildren's voices. All
1: right, what sound is your least favorite?
0: Uh, discordant music, period. I do not like uh, lack of harmony. Mm,
1: Very good. What other profession would you have liked to try?
0: I would have loved to have been a doctor had I been drawn to science and so forth because I love the idea of the healing professions. So I so admire Albert Schweitzer for the reasons previously stated. To go to medical school when he was about 40 years old and he was at the peak of the profession. Yeah. both as an academic. He had both a PhD in philosophy, a PhD in theology, and he was a world-renowned Bach organist. Talk about a polymath, whatever <laughs> that is. But someone who does a lot of stuff.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, he, he, he did it well. He did, he did, it, did well. it well. What, what profession do you know you would not want to do?
0: Anything that requires really hard outdoor labor in the cold.
1: <laughs> okay. And but I love
0: being out of doors. Yeah. 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 Uh,
1: yeah I, I i get you of course Texas is a pretty temperate place to live most times, but poof, in the heat and that cold we had not too long ago
0: yeah i- honestly strangely enough, don't mind the heat that much. I mean, I don't say, oh isn't this is great it's a great day, but heat is heat, but uh, cold, yeah, not <laughs> yeah. good, especially what what we suffered through and oh yes that's a that's a topic that you'll probably be hitting in this podcast <laughs> yeah. at some juncture.
1: Well, finally, what do you want to hear God say to you when you enter the pearly gates?
0: Good and faithful servant. You fell down a lot, but you tried to pick yourself up. And uh, so uh, Potter Stewart was a justice on the Supreme Court when I was clerking at the court so many years ago. And when he was asked, uh, what do you want on his tombstone? He's a very elegant guy, Yale College, editor of the Yale Daily News, Yale Law School, of a very elegant lawyer in Cincinnati, Ohio, and a judge, and then a justice appointed by Eisenhower so a long time ago. He said, a good judge. (laughs) Pretty simple. (laughs) Well, you are a good judge. Well, thank you. And
1: you have written uh, an amazing book. as Religious Liberty in Crisis, Exercising Your Faith in an Age of Uncertainty. Judge Ken Starr, how can folks get a copy?
0: They can pre-order wherever books are sold, obviously online, uh, and then it will be in bookstores everywhere, I hope, uh, in uh, April. The publication date is April 13, but by all means, get your uh, pre-order in on wherever you choose to order online.
1: Well, it's been a delight. It's an excellent read. I highly recommend, and uh, thank you so much.
0: Thank you, Anne. I so appreciate being with you.
1: are you building a new business while managing a family? Are you tired of trying to balance home and work and everything seems to be coming up short? Then there's a podcast made just for you. Baking Your Business from Scratch is where we create the perfect recipe for building a successful business while managing your home and family with love. Come join us and see for yourself.